you know, live your life to the full, uh, have as much fun as possible. And uh, if you do develop arrhythmias, uh, you know, there is unbelievable number of treatments uh, possible. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to STEM Power, the podcast where we interview top researchers and doctors in all fields of STEM. My name's Simran. And my name is Ria. In today's episode, Simran and I will be talking to someone who knows all things heart-related. From being awarded mentorship, investigator of the year, and global achievement awards, to being invited to speak at international heart conferences, and even being the founding member and current chair of the Canadian Heart Rhythm Society Research Committee. We are pleased to welcome the multi-award winning cardiac electrophysiologist, Dr. David Burney. And we'd like to thank you so much, Dr. Burney, for joining us today on STEM Power. We're so thankful that you were able to sneak in some time into your busy schedule for Rhea and I, as we're extremely excited to get to know you and all about your work. Oh, you're most welcome. Okay, so Dr. Bernie, as Rhea mentioned in your brief introduction, you're a cardiac electrophysiologist, meaning that you study more of the heart's electrical system rather than its mechanical function. So can you tell us how you got into the field of cardiology? What has your career path been like? And what do you do specifically as a cardiac electrophysiologist? Well, um, you know, the first uh, part of that story is to tell you how I got into medicine. So, you know, I was, I knew I wanted to be a doctor at the age of 13. You know, I, it was remarkable any time. I broke my arm when I was 13 and I was just so thrilled that I'd broken my arm because it meant I could go to the hospital. I just loved everything <laughs> about hospitals, you know, um, any opportunity to go to the hospital. I just, I loved the buzz about it, everything. So I knew from the age of 13 that I wanted to um, become a doctor. Um, the choice in cardiology was a little bit of a, um, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to laugh when you hear this story, but it's it's the truth. So when you finish medical school in Scotland, it's a little bit like when you finish medical school in Canada, you're faced with, you know, four broad uh, career paths to start with. You can either start to train to become a family doctor. You can start to train to be a psychiatrist. You can start to train to become a, a physician or you can start to train to become a surgeon. And you do that for three years and then um, you then have to then subspecialize. So I finished my medicine and uh, I thought, what am I going to do? And uh, I sat down one day and I thought, you know, I'm going to, you know, do I, do I like dermatology? Do I like hematology? Do I like cardiology? And I, I got the 20 specialties down from 20 to, to five. Um, um, and cardiology was one of them. And then the thing that finally sealed it for cardiology for me was there was this uh, doctor in Scotland that I wanted to work with who was a cardiologist and the reason that I wanted to work with him was he was also the doctor for the Scottish uh, Football Association so soccer in Scotland he was the doctor for the Scottish Football Association and um, at that time if you worked for him you also to get got to work with this Scottish Football Association so you know that was the main reason for choosing cardiology was so I could work with this, with this uh, man and uh, um, so um, it turned out really well uh, I also obviously liked cardiology as well and then you know cardiology then you know then subspecializes you do general cardiology for a few years and then it subspecializes into a number of you, you can either continue to do general cardiology or you can subspecialize and um, either to become a plumber or which looks after uh, the blood supply of the heart or or um, an electrician that looks after the electrics of the heart so i decided to become an electrician so 
we deal with um, uh, the electrics of the heart, you know, uh, very simply the heart can either go too slow or too fast. If it goes too slow, you put a pacemaker in. If it goes too fast, there's lots of different treatments, including medicines, uh, some surgical procedures called ablations, um, or some devices called the defibrillators. So I spend my time between um, seeing patients whose heart rhythm goes too slow, or other patients where their heart rhythm goes too fast, or there's a third group of patients where there's nothing wrong with them and just need them, um, you know, um, to, to to be told that there's there's nothing wrong with their heart rhythm. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Wow, that's really fascinating. I liked your analogy of the plumbers and the electricians. Some would think that like something so specialized like a heart, like how can you just break it down? But I liked how you explained that. That's pretty interesting. So um, like you said, your path in Scotland to become a doctor, how did that, now that, you've, you, now that you're in Canada, was the transfer process um, like simple? Were you able to pick up where you left off or how, how did that go? Yeah, no, it was fairly simple. The story was, you know, I, I, I finished my, you know, I did uh, my med school in Scotland and then I worked for 10 years and then uh, in Scotland and then uh, <clears throat> there was an opportunity to do some advanced training in uh, cardiac electrophysiology and I, um, I decided to do it in Canada because it was very easy to, to cross train in Canada. Came here for a year, never thought I would stay, went back to Scotland for two years and then they offered me a job and we decided to, to try it because Ottawa Heart Institute is such a remarkable place to work. It really is. And Ottawa is such a wonderful city to live in. Um, but, you know, the medical practice is very, very similar. Um, you know, a lot of the um, uh, Canadian way of training docs is, is based on the British and the Scottish system. So we're trained very, 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 very similarly. And um, the patients are very similar, you know, you know, uh, you know, very similar uh, to, 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 to UK patients as well. So the transition of the practice was wasn't hard and the licensing wasn't hard either. Um, and it's a wonderful place to live and a, a wonderful place to work. No, I can definitely agree. Like Simran and I are also both in Ottawa and it's, it's a great city and we have so much like medical information and research that happens here. It's really remarkable. So when we were doing some background research in um, cardiology, we learned about arrhythmia and we found that it is something that you, Dr. Bernie, work closely with. So can you just explain to our listeners a little bit about what arrhythmia is and if people should be like people like us should be worried about it? So yeah, arrhythmia, you know, it's a very fascinating thing because it's 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 you know, although it sounds like it's one disease, it's actually, you know, multiple different diseases um, and multiple different causes. So arrhythmia can can affect uh, patients, you know, at any point in their life. There's there's some arrhythmias that, you know, affect uh, children and babies and so on. And then there's other arrhythmias that, um, you know, affect uh, people in the later stages of their life. So we really, we really see a spectrum and that's another joy of it that we actually, we, we look after patients of multiple age groups, some specialties, you know, the plumbers, for example, you know, they generally just look after older people because, and patients who get problem with their plumbing and um, tend to have uh, coronary artery disease, which tends to be a disease just of older people. So, you know, we do, um, we see patients who've got particular forms of genetic arrhythmia, so they can present us in, you know, childhood or their teens, and there's procedures that we can do to completely um, cure them. There's genetic forms of arrhythmia that 
it's just due to some extra fibers in the heart that just need um, 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 those fibers just need barbecued and then the patients are cured. Um, there's other types of arrhythmia that uh, happen in, in later life. Um, in particular, there's one type of arrhythmia called um, atrial fibrillation, which is um, is an age-related arrhythmia, starts to affect patients in their 40s, but you know, then exponentially increases until patients, uh, you know, in patients in their 90s, about 10% of the population have atrial fibrillation. It's that, it's that common. Um, and with the aging population, we're seeing lots and, and lots and lots and lots of it. And there's, you know, some really um, very effective treatments for it as well. So we're certainly never short of patients. Um, and there's other arrhythmias as well. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, patients where their heart rhythm goes too slowly. And um, again, that's generally an age-related phenomenon, tends to be patients in their 70s and 80s and 90s. Um, pacemaker technology is, is constantly evolving. So the field is constantly is constantly changing. And then finally, there's there's some type of arrhythmias that are life-threatening. Um, 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 and sometimes that can be extremely difficult to work out, which in which patients it's life-threatening and very difficult decision-making uh, with the patient. And again, there's specific treatments for patients with that type of arrhythmia. We, we um, implant about 300 patients, actually closer to 400 now, 400 patients a year with uh, very sophisticated devices called um, implantable uh, defibrillators. Um, they're all subcutaneously implanted and uh, the patients um it's, it's incredible technology the patients live completely normal lives essentially um but they're protected with these devices if their if their heart ever goes into life-threatening arrhythmia the device um you know shocks them and people will, will be very aware of of from um and from from you know multiple television shows Grey's anatomy and blah 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 of of what it looks like to defibrillate a a, a patient externally um, with the paddles and so on. Um, um, so this device is an internal device that uses very similar technology, but, you know, it's obviously um, much more promptly uh, working. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's crazy that there's so many different forms of arrhythmia. I thought initially that it was just something that our older population had to worry about. But yeah, as you mentioned that it's something that even like babies have to deal with. And I've read that the primary cause of arrhythmia is an electrolyte imbalance. Uh, would you say that the best way to treat it for young people, instead of um, implanting things like pacemakers and defibrillators, would you say just uh, replenishing their body with electrolyte-rich foods and beverages is good enough for young people specifically? No, I'm, I, I would not. It, again, it, it depends on the arrhythmia very much. Um, it, there's such a spectrum of, of different arrhythmias. Um, you know, in a few patients, uh, actually more than a few, uh, the arrhythmia is related to some lifestyle issues and, and, and advice is just to, to change the lifestyle in particular, you know, alcohol and drugs can cause arrhythmias and, and oftentimes we can just say, you know, you need to you know, change your lifestyle and that's the answer. Also, there's a real link um, that's emerging uh, between obesity and um, types of arrhythmia. And um, so again, 
treatment lifestyle changes is the, the is the management it's rare however that we just find a patient that it's purely due to electrolyte abnormalities it does happen but i would say it's a, it's a tiny tiny percentage where um it's just an electrolyte imbalance yeah because i remember reading i think it was on WebMD or something saying that soccer players are at a very high risk of developing arrhythmia um, and that the best way that they would treat it is they just drink things like Gatorade. But yeah, as you just mentioned, that is not the best way to treat it. Yeah, again, it depends on the arrhythmia. There are, yeah, I, I, I don't know what this specific um, context there was. Um, you know, uh, again, we, you know, yeah, the context is important. You know, soccer players are are increased risk of arrhythmia, but still, their overall risk is still very tiny. And mm -hmm. you know, and I think it's important to understand the difference between absolute risk and relative risk. Relative risk, you know, um, um is increased in soccer players but their absolute risk is, is still very tiny mm -hmm. okay well that's a really good point to note about like maybe younger people who have arrhythmia or like we said soccer players people who are like at the peak of their athletic and physical ability but like you mentioned earlier dr Bernie, like there's some tr devices like pacemakers and uh, implanted defibrillators that can that we've also heard that can cause actually as much as they can benefit patients and really save their lives, they can potentially also cause fatal infections in patients. So we heard that um, you had worked on um, a device called PADIT, which helps um, like rate patients on their susceptibility to these kind of infections. So how do cardiologists detect these kind of infections and what can you do about it? Yeah, that's an, it's an excellent point, uh, Maria, you know, they're, you know these devices are incredibly sophisticated, but they're they're also not perfect. You know we say to patients, you know your body's not perfect, and these devices are not perfect either. They 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 can malfunction, the leads can fracture, and um, you know they it, so we don't take a decision to implant something like this in a patient's body um, lightly. We have to think about it very carefully, and it. It's very much a shared decision between the patients and uh, and uh, the physician, um, but you know, oftentimes the stakes are high. The patients are at risk of of sudden death in the middle of the night when they're sleeping, and then it's you know a relatively easy decision for the patient to make. But there are downsides, uh, for sure, and um, the ones I mentioned, and and the one. The one that you mentioned is also important and um, you know when one of these devices gets infected and it's about one percent of these devices get infected and um, it's a real mess and um, because the the infection in um, spreads um, and uh, throughout the device including down the lead sometimes towards the heart and um, antibiotics uh, um, are helpful but don't cure don't cure the infection so generally the device has to and, and everything that's inside the body has to be extracted and the issue there is um if the device has been in for a while and um, there's very significant uh, scarring happens and the device gets fibrosed into the body and so it gets it gets fibrosed in, in multiple places uh, in the patient's body, so it, it's it's a sig very significant procedure to to remove it and and clear the infection. So, you know, it is about one percent, and it usually is related to the actual procedure. And um, one of the issues with these devices is that they need to be um, replaced 
every 10 years or so with a new battery. And it's the, it's the actual replacement procedure that often um, introduces the infection. So, you know, there's multiple uh, research projects ongoing to try to reduce the risk of infection. We've, we've been involved in a, in a number of over the years. We are making progress. You know, the infection rate used to be um, 3%. We've now got it down to below 1%. Um, we've got some other projects ongoing at the moment that we think we can get it down to 0.5%. Um, will we ever eradicate it altogether? I don't know. <laughs> but uh, we are making progress. No, that's really good to hear. Like that much decrease in such a small amount of time, like even going from 2% to 1%, that's still saving so many lives. Now, um, mm -hmm. in this, we, um, I mentioned um, PADID, and when we were reading about your research, um, it came up a lot as, um, as this tool that you had worked on. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about what it is and how it can be applied to uh, clinical practice? Yeah, no, this is one of the ways where we, we work in medicine and, you know, we're seeing a a huge change in, in medicine and it, it's it's completely appropriate you know i i was trained in in you know i've been a physician now for over 30 years and you know 30 years ago medicine was a very paternalistic uh, specialty and you know most patients of that generation were very happy for it to be like that you know they would say you know whoever you think doctor you know i i don't know you you, you decide for me or or you, 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 you know, I'm happy with whatever you think. Um, and now, you know, there are still some patients who, who you know, generational thing, who, who trust their doctor so much and just don't want to be involved in the, the details of their healthcare. But, you know, there's a huge evolution towards younger patients like you folks who, you know, of course they want to be involved in their healthcare and I want to be involved in my healthcare and I want to be involved in, in the decisions about my health. And, the second part of that story is that, you know, you know, many decisions about healthcare choices are not black and white. You know, there's there's not a clear right way of doing things or a clear wrong way. And, you know, patient preferences are very, very important uh, in making decisions. So, you know, but part of the, the third part of this very long story is sometimes it's very hard to explain to a patient the pros and cons. They don't have our training. We also don't all of us don't have training in how to explain things in lay terms. You know, it's not always easy concepts to break into lay terms. So um, the final part of this uh, is that, you know, what we've done is tried to create this tool that, that can make it extremely easy for physicians um, to explain things to their patients and also extremely easy to the patients to understand it. So basically what this tool is, it's actually not a tool, it's actually, it's a web-based uh, things you, anybody can go onto the web and, and, and access it. Basically what you do is you plug in um, um, different aspects of the patient's uh, uh, um, clinical features. And it basically spits out, a, you know, different aspects get different numbers of points. It then creates the score and, um, and, and the final score then tells you, um, it spits out basically a patient with these characteristics undergoing uh, the, undergoing surgery for a new pacemaker has a risk of infection of 
of 3% or of 2% or of 9%. And you spit that out to the patient um, and the patient then can sort of say, well, gosh, 9%, I really don't fancy a 9% risk of infection. I hate infections. Or, you know, the risk is 0.01%. Well, that sounds reasonable. I accept that. So that's really what's behind it. You know, that it's the same sort of, it's not rocket science. Um, it's part of my research. It's, it's you know, the way medicine is going is that we're going to do more of these, uh, make things simpler for patients to be involved in decision-making. Yeah, I think it's great that you and your team were able to create this. I think it, it was a score that I read online and that you're making it so much more transparent for patients to actually know what's going on with them. And I think that's just incredible. Now, on a bit of a side note, Rhea and I read that you have worked with the Medical Advisory Committee of the Canadian Soccer Association. Can you talk about what it was like incorporating your work in the lab with the players on the field? Yeah, I know that this came from my involvement all those years ago in the Scottish Football Association. So when I emigrated to Canada, you know, I, people found out that I was had done this type of work before, so I got uh, involved. So it's 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 a ton of fun. It really is. I I actually I'm not involved. In, I'm primarily on an advisory basis. I don't uh, often interact with the players one on one, but you know, my my role has been. Um, uh, uh, two, really, you know, the big concern with these elite soccer players is obviously, you know, there is these awful stories and it always um, attracts a huge amount of um, media attention when a, when a high-profile athlete, um, you know, dies on court or, you know, there's been some very famous instances where ba basketball players have died suddenly. There's also been some very famous um uh, instances of soccer players dying uh, suddenly in the middle of a game so there's always that risk there so my role has been you know twofold and um, number one is is to help um um with with the screening of the players to make sure that they they, they, they don't have an increased risk of this happening but the other thing and you know we've advocated very heavily for is you know, the screening doesn't work very well. It really doesn't. You know, a lot of these players who do have these um, events have already been screened and nothing high risk was, was picked up. They just had these events that, you know, you know, that were beyond the edge of medical science to pick up. And, you know, that's unfortunately that. So, you know, better than the screening has been to how to respond to it. So, you know, we've, we've very much advocated that, you know, um, the screening doesn't work very well. So what has to work well is the response to these events. So, you know, we've advocated, for example, for wide, wide uh, access to um, uh, AEDs, ambulatory, you know, these defibrillators, community defibrillators. We've very strongly advocated. We've been, you know, involved at the Heart Institute, for example. A few years ago, we had a big rash of um, um, old-timer hockey players uh, dying on the on the hockey rinks and we said well this is ridiculous you know what you need to do is every hockey rink in, in canada should have a defibrillator in it you know it's again it's not rocket science but it, it didn't exist before now now every hockey rink has got a defibrillator in there we're trying to do the same with soccer fields the problem is the soccer fields are so widely spread in the city and who maintains them and so on and so forth um, from a Canadian Soccer Association perspective, you know, quite early on, I, I said to them, you know, every time, every time a Canadian soccer 
team is is practicing, there should be a defibrillator at the side of the field. You know, now what happens is that is that we have some defibrillators that the teams take with them, so they're always traveling with a defibrillator. They've never never ever has a team used one, but that doesn't matter. The point is that they they have them there. So that's the type of work that uh, I've been doing with the Canadian Soccer Association. Wow, that's that's really important. Like I I play soccer too, and I'm sure you must have some like background in the sport as well. When I play, you go out on the field and especially when it's a hot day and it's outside and people do like if they eat or if it's a long tournament, people do get like sick or they get like heartburn or they get heat stroke. And especially these heart conditions can be really like impacting because you're running for so long. It's like the stress of everything, especially for like those elite players who are playing like training seven days a week, several hours a day. So I can really see how that's important. And just, I guess, as a point of, I know you're advocating for defibrillators at soccer fields and I see your point, like it's an outdoor field, it rains, where do you put the defibrillator? It's a lot of, I guess it's a, it's a technical challenge, but what I've seen is that in schools, like Simran and I in grade nine in high school, I think all um, OCDSB schools require you to in, as part of your gym class, learn how to use a defibrillator yeah. and you learn how to use, like learn how to do basic first aid for someone who is not breathing or their heart isn't beating. And I think that's like really important to educate youth and educate players who are going to, who might end up in these positions. And like you said, thankfully no one's had to use them, but you never know. And you always want to be prepared. So that's, that's really important work. Now, I know I didn't mention it earlier, but uh, Dr. Bruni, you are a professor at the University of Ottawa. So one of our listeners was wondering, um, what is the biggest mistake you have seen a young researcher make, whether it be like their mindset or an approach they've taken and how can future researchers prevent making it? Yeah, it, you know, <laughs> what's the biggest mistake? Hmm. I, I, I see young folks doing two things actually. Um, um, the first thing that they, they do is in, in their enthusiasm, they, they mix up um, um, the hammer with the nail. So <laughs> to explain that analogy a little bit more, they, they, they look at um, uh, you know, a tool or a, a technique and, and try to see how many nails they can hammer in. Um, with that technique, whereas for me, that's completely back the wrong way around. You know, I always try and teach people that, you know, the, the way to do clinical research is, is always start with what the question is. What's the clinical problem? You know, um, can we reduce uh, infections in, um, in, in patients with devices? Um, can we, um, you know, I can give you multiple examples. Always start with the, the clinical question. You know, can we reduce the number of patients who are dying uh, on the soccer field? Can we reduce the number of elderly patients who are dropping dead? All of these. And then think of the clinical question first and then work backwards to the, the hammer that's going to solve the problem. So that's um, um, the first problem I see is that it, it, it's sometimes the first way around is much easier to, to, to start off with. Um, the other problem I see for young folks is that they generally um, try to uh, do too many things at once. Instead of um, they, they take on seven projects and don't do any of them well, you're much, much better to take on two or three and do them extremely well. Um, it takes the same amount of, of effort sometimes to do a project badly as it is to do a project well. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very, when I mentor young folks, I always make those two points uh the third thing is always to get a good mentor 
Mm -hmm. I think that everything that you were saying is very valid because I do some lab research as well, not with cardiology, but with Parkinson's disease. And there are some other young people in the lab and I have noticed them taking on like 12, 13 new projects every single day. And it's just like, wow, what about your other projects? The biggest um, problem, I guess, milestone really that I was able to pass was to stop getting so frustrated when my experiment wouldn't go as I wanted it to go. Over time, I just realized that when you reach the goal, it just feels so much better. And I just learned to get past that and realize that it's just a part of the process. Now, unfortunately, we're slowly reaching the end of this episode of STEM Power, but I have one more question for Dr. Bernie that I'm pretty sure everyone must be asking themselves. Dr. Bernie, what can we do as young people to limit the risk of developing heart problems in our later years? Yeah, I've used the term rocket science before. It's not rocket. <laughs> it's just leading a good, clean, healthy life. Um, um, you know, alcohol moderation, no, no other drugs at all, no smoking, uh, um, exercise regularly, and, uh, um, and, and keep um, as close to normal body weight as you possibly can. And don't worry about it. You know, the, you'll live your life to the full. Uh, have as much fun as possible and uh, if you do develop arrhythmias uh, you know there is unbelievable number of treatments uh, possible well i think that's some great advice that our listeners will definitely be taking to heart and uh, <laughs> once again thank you so much dr bernie for joining us and sharing about your work with simran and i as well as our listeners yeah, good luck to you all Thank you. Yeah. And lastly, just thank you everyone for tuning into this week's episode of STEM Power with cardiac electrophysiologist, Dr. David Burney from the Ottawa Heart Institute. Be sure to check us out on all social media platforms at STEM Power Ottawa, and we hope you have a great rest of your day. Mm-hmm.